0: There isn't a one-size-fits-all marketing approach to selling real estate. And sure, there's best practices, but I think that you need to develop a strategy that's unique to your brand or your business and that highlights your superpower. So welcome to the Marketing Trench Podcast, a show dedicated to helping you find your superpower and exploring creative solutions to build a more visible brand that consistently delivers an exceptional customer experience. Whether you're selling real estate, loans, title, or escrow, doesn't matter. We've got you covered. Let's go.
1: Marketing Tretch Podcast. Today, we are really excited to have our good friend, Josh Lewis. Josh has Fortunate distinction of having to work with Scott. We understand that it's difficult, so this is actually a therapy session for Josh. Now, <laughs> we're going to be talking today about a really interesting report that was put together by the National Mortgage Insurance Corporation and Cultural Outreach. One's a marketing company; the other insures mortgages. And they're taking a look at what they call next-gen home buyers. These are primarily people. If you look at the demographics at the end of the study, which I did because nerd. These are primarily people who are between the ages of about 25 to 30, 38, 39. So your millennial buyers, that's, that's basically the entire bracket of millennials. And historically speaking, they this generation has been defined by entering into the workforce right around the big crash in 2008. That's when a lot of these kids were graduating from college or recently graduated from college, were starting to climb the ladder and then everything fell apart. And now you fast forward about another 10, 12 years, these are people who you know, had to recover from that, are starting to reclimb this ladder. They've got families, they've been at their job for a while, some of them are in upper middle management, and now we've got the COVID crisis. So there's a lot of financial stress that has bookended what you might consider to be their professional career life. And yet, and yet... There's interesting insights in this study, which really, I don't know how you guys felt, but I felt like it really opened my eyes. It was like, wow, this kind of defies expectations a little bit. And if you know, this is the Marketing Trench podcast, we're going to talk about sales and marketing. If you're trying to market to this demographic, there's some really interesting data in here that you should know before you go start putting together your campaigns. Because if you're thinking, ah, oh, I've got the conventional wisdom down. Well, the conventional wisdom seems to be wrong in some areas. So that's kind of the setup.
2: How you doing, guys? I just want to say that I feel tricked because Scott told me this was a Big Brother podcast and <laughs> we were going to talk about last night's eviction and who won the HOH, maybe some live <laughs> feed talk, but apparently we're talking about real estate, so I go, I'll i go with it.
0: Scott lies all the time. I don't even, I don't even know what Big Brother is. I was thinking, George Orwell, why? and then I forget you watch that crazy show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my
1: goodness! Sure, God. Scott, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it says the now, guy who's keeping up with the Kardashians.
0: I do watch the mass singer though I gotta admit I'm kind of addicted to that that's kind of funny. I no, <laughs> wanted to add here because there was a couple of things that I thought were interesting is really, it really while it does focus a lot on millennials it's actually pulling in some of the gen Zers too mm-hmm. so this isn't a pure millennial this is the group of people coming behind it I always want to know where the where they're getting their information from this is uh, 950 buyers between the ages of 22 and 37 that have purchased in the last three years or plan to purchase in the future. Setting that context up, I'm like you, Dustin, I was shocked by a lot of this stuff. But actually, quite frankly, I was very enthusiastic about it really reinforced a lot of things that we talk about all the time. Well, actually, we've been talking about for the last 10 years of where you need to be to be able to communicate with these people. So yeah, let's dive into it.
1: So the first thing that stood out to me as shocking was right away, page 10, where it says, recent homebuyers, 72% were significantly more likely than future home buyers, 62%, to grow up learning how to make a budget or financially plan. And the reason that that stood out to me was because, frankly, their predecessors in Gen X and the boomer generation weren't so great with money and financial planning. I mean, you know, you look at the statistics and some outrageous numbers. Some huge majority of Americans can't survive an event that would require them to come out of pocket for a thousand bucks or more. That's what the studies show. You really get the sense that a lot of Americans are living in debt. Of course, uh, the millennial generation is notorious for having astounding amounts of uh, student loan debt, and yet there's there's this sense here that you know what, they're actually more financially sophisticated than their student loan debt might lead on. Is this something you guys deal with, you know, qualifications on loans all the time, you deal with debt to income ratio? What do you guys think? Does that sound about right?
2: Well, one of the things, Dustin, that I look at and try and keep the lens on here, I don't know if you guys saw last week, the Fed uh, released the Survey of Consumer Finance for the most recent three year period. Scott and I look at this a lot. It's very informative when you look at homeowners have 40 times greater net worth than non homeowners. So a lot of these numbers, when you're looking at it, they say uh, recent homebuyers versus future homebuyers. And another way of saying that is people who've already made the leap, who got themselves to that point that they've gotten it done versus people who want to do it, they tend to be older, which the cohort here is limited by, by the generational range that they gave. But homebuyers tend to be a little bit older. They tend to have higher incomes in general, tend to be more educated, all of those things that kind of correlate to this. So when I when I look at that number, it's not really surprising that the ones have, that have successfully made the leap from renter to homeowner were more likely to have been budgeting and dealing with financial plans and have been successful at saving and investing and getting a down payment together and getting themselves to that point.
1: Oh, that's interesting. One of the things that comes to mind from a sales and marketing perspective is the number of agents or the number of lenders who come to me to help sponsor a class uh, where they bring in some sort of financial planner, right? Say, hey, we're going to do a home buyer workshop plus a financial planner workshop. The idea being that people don't really have a sense of how to structure their finances. And so that's where the financial planner comes in. And then the you know real estate agent gets to pitch people on buying or selling. And that might be effective. But I, I read this and I think, you know, that actually might not be the message, exactly the right message.
2: I don't know what you guys think, but I, I, I think a financial planner for your average first-time buyer, and we're talking about next-gen buyers, they're generally not move-up buyers. They're getting into their first home. It, it's overkill. A financial planner, really, if you're just putting a couple hundred bucks a month into your 401k and saving some money on the side to, to buy a home that level of planning is is pretty sophisticated if you understand the best options for saving in a tax advantaged way while you're while you're accumulating your down payment and closing costs and also making sure that you're not putting that money at risk you'd hate to get into a stock market bubble right about the time when you're going to invest your money so it's pretty basic financial planning. So a true full-blown financial planner is great for the 45, 50-year-old who's accumulated a nice little nest egg. For the person just starting out, it's kind of overkill. So for most agents talking to buyers and getting ready to jump into that, you know, they can probably cover the elements of financial planning that matter to a next-generation homebuyer on their own.
0: Well, and what they're specifically referring to here is budgeting it mean, definitely doesn't require a financial advisor, and there's tons of tools out there to teach people how to budget. Look at the money you've got coming in, decide how much you have to peel off here. you have to peel off here. and like Josh said how to manage your money in a tax advantage way.
1: So we are talking about then building well. Josh brought mm-hmm. this up and managing your money in a tax advantage way and it, and the next thing that jumped out to me was financial priorities for next gem homeowners. Number three was owning a home. And the thing that I would thought when I read that was, that's interesting because children tops that. And I'm not exactly yeah. sure what they mean by, by children. If one thing you're thinking about, to Josh's point, is building wealth over the course of your life so that, for example, when you're ready for retirement, and then eventually as you think about end-of-life care, which is hugely expensive, especially in the United States, having that wealth built is one big way that you make sure you alleviate the burden on your children. If children, and if savings also, by the way, are priorities, shouldn't homeownership be up the list further?
2: You would think it's essential to that discussion. Look at that list. Like four and five, (laughs) four and five are kind of optional stuff. One, two, and three for most people are are not optional. You know, Scott and I are rare. We don't don't have kids and, and probably not going to, but Ricardo just had a kid. The majority of people, even in this day and age, still have children and having a home both to put a roof over their head, a home base for them to grow up securely in, and then accumulating savings—whether it's home equity or separate savings—like when I looked at that chart, like I was, my feeling was it's like the first three are, are pretty closely intertwined, and then the second two are kind of like, hey, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When you take care okay. of the important okay. stuff, then you can work onto this self-actualizing travel and wedding stuff.
0: Well, and what, what's also interesting here, and this might just be a lack of financial education. Probably the best savings vehicle you could ever create is owning a
1: home. That that was, I noted that in the comment here a high yield savings account. I said, notice nobody considers building equity in their home as a form of savings
2: or building wealth. How much of a return are you getting on that high yield? Today is 0.7. But, but hold on, though. This is this is an important discussion, and there's reasons for this. Savings of next-gen homeowners, how are you saving money? What are they saving for? They're vaguely saving for retirement. That is a long ways away, but they're very smart to start now because you guys have seen the numbers. Save $100 a month when you're 20 versus saving a 1000 when you're 40. It's smart to start early. And with that long time horizon, you want to be invested in the stock market. What we look at, though, is you're saving for a down payment, you don't want to be exposed to the ups and downs of the stock market. I mean, if you're thinking, let's say in Orange County, a first-time buyer, $600,000. Split the difference between 3 and 5% down, depending on what program they're, they need $25,000. If in the course of you saving $25,000, you're counting on growth in the stock market to be a, a significant portion of that, We're probably going about this wrong. So one of the things in here when they're talking about how the differences between men and women, and women are more likely to go to a high-yield savings account and men are more likely to invest, there's just more risk. And in a short time horizon, when in a one, two, three, four-year time period you're trying to save for your down payment, the high-yield savings account actually makes sense. What was interesting to me when I looked at this, you, you hear so much that Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, the beauty of a Roth, you get taxed on the way in. But you're able to get that, that money out, including the growth, To depending the growth is taxed, but your, your principal contribution, you're able to get that out for buying a home. So you look at that and go, it's a great idea, but really the benefit of the Roth is over time, the growth you can eventually pull out without being taxed on it. So I think the, the Roth IRA and 401k, which the Roth 401k is a little more common now, it gets a little overhyped in the context of, of buying a home. Kind of circling back to your other point of, of home being a significant source of savings, once you're in, you're not a, a home buyer, you're a next-gen homeowner, that same um, survey of consumer finance says 60% of American homeowners' net worth is in their home more than 50% of it ends up in their home. So it's important to manage that. We all saw in 2008 how poorly it turned out when people looked at it as a piggy bank and were, were easily withdrawing money through mortgage equity withdrawals and refinances. But it does end up being the number one piece of wealth for, for most homeowners over time.
1: Okay. So I want to get into that, but I have notes on that a little bit later in the report, but that's really interesting. So you think... Josh, just to really quickly recap, so you're looking at this high-yield savings account, and you're saying, no, that makes sense for people who are trying to save up and get into a home.
2: I, I don't want my money at risk in the stock market and, and lose 10 15 20% right when I'm getting close to having my down payment pulled together.
1: Right, right. No, that makes sense. I didn't really have any notes here on the next page, which talks about how much consumer debt there is. We'll dive into it a little bit more, but up to a quarter of people out there have over $20,000 in consumer debt. Can you guys just briefly talk about the importance or the relationship of debt to the ability to purchase?
2: The important part we talk about numbers and how how numbers look. I really don't care about the absolute numbers here of five thousand five to twenty thousand or over twenty thousand because we're a little jaded here in Southern California again our entry- level buyers are entering at five hundred to seven to eight hundred thousand dollars to buy that, you have a household income of one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars household income, so for them, five thousand dollars is nothing it 'd be like it 's almost the equivalent of call it no debt. Five to twenty thousand would be low debt uh, at over twenty thousand now consider a car loan is going to be included in there you can 't hardly find a new car listed for under thirty thousand dollars so a decent sized car loan for a younger person who is likely to have just entered the workforce, bought a car, they're going to end up in that top tier. So for us, I want to look at it and consider, is the the debt load and the debt service, the monthly payments on that in line with what their actual income is? Because if it is, it's not so much of a problem. A common loan for a first-time buyer is an FHA loan, and that allows up to a 47% housing-to-income ratio and up to a 57% total debt-to-income ratio. So that leaves you 10%. And we're talking at the absolute max. But as long as debt service on the whatever amount of debt load they have is at 10% or less of gross income, that's what I like to see. So if we can keep it in that 5% range, then that's someone that, that's kind of doing well.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, I'm looking here at the credit card debt specifically, which is on the next screen. I had a prompt here. You know, Does it hurt your home buying prospect to have credit card debt? And to your point, it's like, well, how much money are you making, especially in a place like California? But generally speaking, there's just not a good reason to have credit card debt, right? I mean, if you can pay that off, you want to just because of the amount of interest you're spending on that debt.
2: What I always find interesting is if we have a borrower with one credit card and it seems to be a high, high amount, six grand, eight grand, ten grand, and there's no other cards, I always like to ask them, how do you use this card? What's the plan for this? And a lot, when I say a lot, maybe one out of three, they go, oh, we just, everything goes on that. I pay it off every month. And for those, for those people, makes all the sense in the world. It looks bad at loan application time because that can be a big payment. And maybe some of those people aren't telling the truth, that's their dream is that they're paying it off every month. They pay half of it. The ones that I worry about are the people that have four or five, six cards with three or $4,000 on each one. And some of them will still tell you the story of, oh, well, that's at a zero balance or zero interest rate till then. And I have this. And it's like, what amount of psychic energy and, and mental RAM are you allocating to managing when you have to have this paid off and what money is is over there? Maybe I'm just simple, like whatever I'm going to put, I have one credit card and it just, if it goes on there, great. And then I see it and I go, what's my plan for paying it off? These people that have these elaborate plans, I'm just like, it's a hobby. And some of them it is. So if that's what the, what it is, that's mm-hmm. great. But for most people, they just have way, way, way too much uh, of their credit card debt. And the other one that blows my mind that we'll see probably about 5%, 10% of our clients, even ones that are in a good financial position, they'll have 25 credit cards and they'll have like 100 or $200 on each one. They'll have every store card on the planet and they'll tell you, well, I get bonuses or I get this. And again, I just go back to how much time do you have in your life? Think of paying your bills every month if you have 20 credit cards that have a $20 monthly payment. So that's a little a little digression away from from home buying, but all of that it just it, it's just a picture, and you start seeing different like archetypes of of consumers and how they use credit, and it's really no different homeowner or next gen homeowner or or last gen homeowner they all they're all kind of all over the spectrum of how they use credit.
1: Yeah, it's like Scott and his Forever 21 credit card that he puts everything on. Maxes maxes <laughs> it and then oh. asks for a new increase to the limit. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't show up, I wouldn't have a piñata. <laughs> Okay, so hurdles to home ownership. This one didn't uh, surprise me at all. The biggest one we hear about it all the time: down payment. Totally get it, especially in you know Southern California, where like you just mentioned, Josh, you're talking twenty five thousand dollars, and that gets you three to five percent down. Right? That's it, it's a it's a lot it's a lot of money, and uh, it's not a lot of percent down. So debt is the next one, probably student student loan debt, and then monthly payments comes in after that. No real surprises here. But one of the things that jumped out to me from a sales and marketing perspective was that only about 25% of people who are out there know about down payment assistance programs. In your guys' opinion, in a place like California, are there really any meaningful down payment assistance programs that people don't know about or that you guys have seen used often and you you would call our attention to?
2: if they are aware of it and they call and they ask us for it and we say yes we can do the CalHFA hfa down payment assistance but do you mind if i put another alternative next to it just your standard fha or a three percent down conventional if your high balance a five percent down conventional and look at getting in different times not in the current market but in different times a seller credit for some of your closing costs or we can get a lender credit and cover some or all of those closing costs very rarely does anyone choose the down payment assistance. And that's different in other parts of the country. California is unique. Back in 2011, I believe it was when Governor Moonbeam balanced the the budget, one of the things that he did was shut down all of the city housing uh, authorities and took all of their budgets back to the state level. And it, t- it just put a bunch of extra money in the in the state's hands, but it eliminated all of these local city programs, which some of them were good, some of them were terrible, but there were a lot of them. Scott started blogging about them back in 2007. We still get a significant traffic from these programs that no longer exist. For the most part, all we have in California is CalHFA, which is your standard first mortgage with a second and a third, sometimes a third, that either they're, they're silent, they don't require payments. One does accrue interest and the other one doesn't. When someone sees what that looks like and how it limits their options and abilities to refinance going forward, most people, if at all possible, will choose a non-down payment assistance option. Now, we go to other parts of the country, they have more and better options down payment assistance-wise, and they can make sense.
0: Going back to a sales and marketing angle on this, there's quite a few reports out there. There continues to be reports. It still blows my mind of the percentage of people that believe that you need 20% down payment to even buy a house. So when you see here that most people think that down payment Is going to be the the biggest problem or the biggest hurdle as professionals it's our responsibility to go out there josh is a thousand percent right a lot of people want the free money but as soon as they see the strings that are attached and there are always strings attached there's always a catch it's either a silent second that you have to pay back Uh, i had a conversation with somebody yesterday in coring about a grant that's available in california and she said, I can get up to 5% for down payment or closing costs. Okay, well, you, you have to take a an interest rate over 4% and you have to keep that loan for three years in order to have it forgiven as a grant. So let's do some math. Let's figure out if that's really what, what you need to do. Because Josh is right, assistance, buyer assistance is not necessarily a down payment assistance program. It could be you can get money from the seller, It's called a seller concession. Well, this is talking to consumers, obviously, the professionals out there know, but educating consumers about the fact, all these different ways that you can get down payment and what down payment really means. Down payment does not mean 20% down. Like Josh mentioned, you can get a conventional loan for as low as 3% down, FHA three and a half traditional conventional at five. If you get 20, that's pretty good, but you don't need that to buy a home. There's a lot of education that needs to go, that that there's a a lot of opportunity for education for us as professionals that we can get out there and educate consumers that, hey, it's not as bad as you might think. You know, we have this conversation about student loans all the time on the, you know, and I think that comes up on a previous page. But a lot of people look at their student loan payments and they're like, oh, man, I have this huge student loan payment. I'm never going to be able to afford a house but they don't know that there's things that they can do with their student loan so that they can afford a house. So, Such as? Well, such as going going into a different payment plan. The default payment plan for a student loan, over, I think, 73% of people who have student loans automatically go into a fully amortized payment. And they look at that fully amortized payment, and they're like, there's no way I could ever qualify for a home. Well maybe look at an income-based payment so that you can buy your home and then pay extra on your student loan when you get in there. Just to get in there there, there, there are options. And then we as professionals need to understand those opportunities. And as we'll see later, it is really, really easy to get in front of these consumers and educate them because we know exactly where they're at and we know exactly where they are going to educate themselves about this information. So the question just becomes, are you going to be the one that's that's in that communication channel? So let's keep going.
1: So along those lines, bringing that kind of knowledge to the table, one of the things that stood out to me here was 40% say qualifying for a mortgage is one of their biggest fears related to home buying. And then the chart right underneath, how confident are you in your understanding of these concepts? Mortgage, 61% confident. Home insurance, 52% goes all the way down to title insurance at 15%. And if I was sitting back I'm a real estate agent, or I'm a title person, or in my case, I'm actually an escrow person. Look at escrow. Only 22% are confident. I think that number is actually a lot higher than I would have guessed. But only 22% of people are confident. And I'm thinking, "Hmm, how can I talk to people? What can I talk to them about based on these numbers? You could talk to them about pretty much anything you do every single day.
2: (laughs) Anything. Anything, (laughs) any day. Because I look at that and I see mortgage at 61% and I go, bullshit. Because we, we talk to people all day, every day. And if they mean by mortgage, do they understand that you get a lump sum and you pay back smaller amounts for 30 years? Yes, they understand that. But any element of the way it works and what it goes together. And and I I don't say that to demean people because for the most part, they have ideas. I get really good questions every day. People are pretty aware of what they don't know. And people are pretty aware that, I have a vague idea of what this portion of the mortgage sounds like, means, is talking about when I read it, but can you explain it to me better? So literally anything in there. I would think if instead of asking the person, how confident are you about these concepts, we tested them on those concepts, all of them would be in the 15% range, all of them across the board. I,
0: I think you're so far off on this, Josh. I, everybody knows you can just push a button and get a mortgage. Yeah, <laughs> no harder, it's no harder than that. Thanks to the magicians
2: in the call center. The good news, Scott, is Uh, Realtor.com is now connecting people to the push button, get mortgage, so that they're eliminating all problems for real estate professionals.
0: (laughs) There we go. solved. This next page is is amazing. I mean, seriously, how much content can a real estate agent create about these topics?
1: Yeah, contract negotiation, appraisal and inspections. Yeah, I mean...
0: That's bananas. Those things are so easy to talk about. So let's set yeah. up some context here. So this is this is a
1: page talking about home buying challenges that this audience talked about having. Number one was contract negotiations. By this point, they've got a licensed professional, but also, especially during this period of time, COVID, weird market, everyone is super busy. It's kind of hard to get a hold of people. I mean, if I wanted to understand something, and I also I was embarrassed to ask about it, the first place I'm going to go is
2: Google. E- Google, Exactly. Same thing, right? I'm going to look it up. That's right. You, you saw in here, Dustin, what did to say? Of this next-gen homebuyer cohort, nine out of 10 are on Facebook weekly, seven out of 10 are on Instagram and YouTube. So if you look, yeah, YouTube has had a massive change. I don't know if it's a change or just a growth of educational content of any type, Like if you ask a question, Google wants you on YouTube. So one of the top one, the three responses is gonna be a YouTube video of someone explaining what you asked about. Once you watch that video, then everything in your feed is more and more about that, that subject. So when you say for this generation, this next cohort of buyers, which we're talking almost 40-year-olds with the front end of the millennials are 39 now, and, and the back end of Gen Z is 10 years old. So you're talking to people who've never thought about owning a home to people who are like well into full-blown adulthood. So there's a pretty big range there. But what they all share is they grew up. In a world where there was an internet that was a big part of their lives and growing daily. So we, you know, Scott and I were talking at lunch. You used to ten years ago, you would come across a realtor or a mortgage person that was a little older and they would proudly tell you, Oh, I'm not good with tech. Oh, I'm not on the internet. I don't do that. You're like, Well, good luck with that, because it's not it's not a thing, it's not a tool anymore for this cohort, it's life. You have to be there.
0: I mean, I remember having this conversation that was always around this you know, you've got to be online, you've got to, you know, you've got to be out there. And, and everybody's like, well, most people get influence for their lender, their real estate agent from friends and family, right? Well, this report is saying something completely different, at least for this generation. Uh, this is a significant shift on the top of this page. It says that 97.5% of future buyers said they'll turn to online resources to learn about the process compared to 92% that relied on realtors, 81% said friends and family, 79% turning to a financial advisor. And then also on this page, it says only 6% of recent buyers said school was an influence on this process. They don't teach this stuff in any sort of public education setting. So I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here. I feel like a skipped record, but 97.5% of future home buyers want to go online to do research, to learn about these things that are itemized in this report that tells you exactly what to talk about. You know,
2: you guys may not believe this. This baby face right here has been doing this for 25 <laughs> years. And in 1995, 96, 97, 98... My realtors, if they said, hey, call Josh, get your loan from him, unless I totally dropped the ball, there was a 85, 90% chance that that person was gonna get their financing from me. Right now, I would say a third of the time The buyer doesn't even want that input from the realtor. So maybe 60, 65% of the time do they ask either they found the realtor after they found their loan, they think they pushed button, got mortgage, they found someone else online, a rate table, whatever. For from our perspective, and it, it's no different from the realtor side, a lot of times the tools of Zillow, Redfin, the things that the buyers have, they feel like they're ahead of the game and then they're picking a professional later. If you don't jump into this conversation of bringing value to them ahead of time, you're late to the party because none of us are able to refer out business the way we used to because of mass marketing and primarily through the internet that's personalized in people's feeds and talking to them. So if you're not there, if you're not doing Facebook and Instagram advertising, someone else is. And and it's either someone local that gets it and knows how to do it, or it's someone from a long ways away that's just mass marketing, everything. So it's not this piece of educating. It's not an option. You, you look at who's getting business and who's doing business. One of Scott and I's mentors in a coaching program we're in, he's really big on 80-20. And about three, four years ago, he said, is yesterday's news. It's now 80-20 of the 80-20, so it's like 96-4. And we're seeing this. Look around in your market, in real estate or mortgage. Is there one or two or three players that are twice the size of anyone in your market five, seven years ago? There probably is. Yeah, they've put a team together and they may not be making twice the profits, but it's all under one silo and they're generating that business. The option is either keep fighting over little scraps or become one of those people that's out front educating this next generation of buyers and commanding that chunk of the market for yourself.
1: Yeah. and, And to that point, I think about what Scott often refers to as trust assets. We've talked about this on multiple episodes of our podcast. People are looking for reliable, credible, and informative real estate professionals. Like you said, Josh, if you are trying to come into the conversation you know, when people actually start their search, you're probably coming a little bit too late. Like, they're getting hit already with marketing from beforehand. You know, I think of that famous case where Target got in a bunch of trouble because they were able to compile data on their consumers so well that they actually knew when women were pregnant before women were telling anyone in their life that they were pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. They would start mailing... You know, baby related content to these homes. And sometimes these, you know, teenage girls would start getting this stuff and their parents would be like, Why is Target sending you diapers? And, you know, what it, well, because Target knew and mom and dad didn't right and the same is true that that data is out there and you, i mean you guys do this all the time right uh, you've got uh, someone that you work closely with who, who knows how to create lookalike audiences who knows how to identify what pages people are going to on facebook what pages people are going to on the internet put these pixels on on them to chase them around the internet to identify certain patterns of existing in the world that then say you know what this person's probably in the early stages of thought about getting a loan and then boom they're getting hit with some sort of marketing and if you're if you're not the person delivering reliable credible and informative information when they're looking for it online somebody else is it's not like people aren't going to find it it's just they're not going to find you
0: i would also argue that consumers know if they're getting a broad like a search revo- result for somebody that is just dumping a ton of money that like a zillow pops up if you're on there creating content that's local about your area, about your, about your local town, most consumers are saying, how do I buy a, how do I buy a home in this town? The only reason these other websites show up is because there's nobody who lives in that town that works in that town. That's creating content around that town. Right. And you're going to always stand out and you're going to always show up. Consumer online consumers aren't stupid. We're not being tricked by stuff. I think we tend to opt for convenience sometimes above quality, but if it's important enough, Mm -hmm. you're looking for that quality. You're looking for that individual person that's reporting from the ground on what this community is like. And you're going to the consumer is going to choose that before they're going to choose one of these big box mass multi-billion dollar advertisers that are just paying for slots and search results. So don't think that you can't compete because you 100% can compete. And like what Josh just said, with the 80-20 and the 97, the competition, the people that are blowing people away probably have a really good online presence. And that's probably the difference. I'm sure there are other factors, but you don't have to be a big, big player to have a really strong presence locally. On online and, and this was what we were talking about this is what Josh alluded to earlier what platforms do you use weekly i think that facebook should be all the way to the end i play only, <laughs> only 99% of people uh, i think probably 100% of people are on are, are on facebook weekly
2: you're showing your age scott we're talking about next gen <laughs> home buyers. they never Go on Facebook, so YouTube and Instagram for for this for this cohort, YouTube and Instagram are off the charts, and Facebook, wow. is, if anything, is probably overrated.
1: Yeah, I I was, surprised, God, I was surprised, to see that as well because I you know I, I talk to I talk to kids who are graduating from college. I do some mentoring for my alma mater, and I ask them, hey, you know, are, are you on Facebook? No, Well, I have a Facebook account, but I maybe check it once a week. I use Instagram all the time, or I use God forbid TikTok. They're on these like other platforms. In fact, it even breaks down along the lines of gender, right? So here I highlighted platform preference differed by gender. Women are 153% more likely to use Facebook and Pinterest. Pinterest, by the way, talk about one of the most underrated social platforms out there. And then men are more
2: likely to use Twitter and YouTube, which I think makes sense because men are masochists and love wading into the cesspool <laughs> that is Twitter and yeah. just getting their brains beaten in by online trolls repeatedly throughout the day. <laughs> Twitter's awful. <laughs> it's
1: like, a, it's just, uh, I don't want to go there. I do feel like YouTube is getting kind of, a, it's underrated here in this study because men and women alike use YouTube. And But the good news is, you know, you can stream, right now, I think we're streaming to Facebook and to YouTube, right? So it's like, you, you can have one stop sources where you produce content, and then you could send it to the places where both men and women are.
2: Well, here, you know, speaking of, of YouTube, I know you guys have had my, my good friend, Jeb Smith, here as a, as a guest before. Continues to get more and more traction. He had, at the beginning of this year, a handful, 100, 300, 500 subscribers. He's closing in on 10,000 subscribers. Okay. And what I can say... What I can say is when he went heavy on it in April during lockdown, that's when he went heavy on his YouTube and building out the channel till, let's say, all the way through July, he had almost no business off of it. Lots of contacts and communication, but not much business five, I would have to ask him to say for sure, but I believe five open escrows right now that relate back to his his YouTube. And those aren't entry-level purchases. They're all 800 to a million two. um, And and lots of other people still in the hopper. So where I'm going with that is Don't get on your webcam or pull out your phone and make one video at a listing posted on YouTube and go, YouTube sucks. It doesn't work. (laughs) He made probably 60 or 70 videos with almost no traction. And other than seeing a subscriber count going up and having interactions in the feeds, nothing dollar wise was telling him this, I'm going in the right direction. I'm going to win at this. But he's absolutely seeing the momentum. And like most realtors, April, May after the shutdown when no one wanted to look at houses sucked. So he had a really low start to the year and he'll end up having a much better year this year than than prior years and that's just a foundation for going into to 2022. And I would say looking at the age of most of those clients, most of them are in this next gen cohort. They're not, you know, 45 to 50 years old. They're in that 30 to 40 year old range and they value and trust and like. Think about this. How many times have we all heard with your marketing, your goal is to get people to know, like, and trust you because people will do work with people that they know, like, and trust. Nothing gets you there faster than video in text. If you, if you write a blog post, you could have someone else write it. No one really knows the tone that, you know, they get a tiny feel for your personality and who you are. It is really hard to hide the real you in video. When we're getting leads off of YouTube, we get a call off of YouTube. It's a different conversation. You know, it's not a lead. It's, It's, we're just continuing a conversation. They feel like we've been talking for quite some time. They know what I think, what I believe, how I communicate and we just jump right in and we're halfway down the tracks there's nothing as powerful like right now the tool to get it in front of people is YouTube over the long haul it could be any video platform nothing gets you further faster than video
1: yeah that's off. yeah that's hundred percent right
0: the future is right probably going to be a hologram of Josh standing <laughs> teaching you about buying a home? So this next
1: one is one of the examples of... This next insight is an example of something that defied expectations for me. Phone calls are preferred by this generation two to one over email. Now, I'm not surprised that this generation doesn't particularly care about email. What I am surprised by is that phone calls over and over in the rest of this report get such a good reputation. And you know, look, I I don't know how, how you guys have things on your phones, but on my phone, any phone number that isn't in my contacts book automatically gets silenced and sent right to voicemail. If you need to talk to me, you'll leave a voicemail or you'll shoot me a text. And then at that point, I might add you to my contact or I just keep Ricardo going all- automatically to <laughs> voicemail. But, but you know, I think people get a cold call. And nobody likes to cold call. I've never met anyone that enjoys cold calling, really. But people do enjoy getting that phone call from a permission marketing perspective, like what we talked about. And this is maybe just a plug for Verse, right? Because that's exactly what Verse... They say, hey, do you want a phone call or a text? And it's like, hey, I want to call, right?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm also wondering... There's an interesting there's an interesting differentiation also here between men and women. And it's saying that, that men prefer phone calls and women prefer texts, which is interesting. But... Also, I mean, I wonder if your call to action. I wonder if your call to action starts being, "Hey, give me a call. Let's have a chat about what, let's about what your questions are." And maybe that resonates. Maybe that resonates with people. But I think it's I think it's interesting, and and I kind of always suspected this that when everything kind of went online, I knew that it was going to come full circle, and people are going to not want to have long distance relationships. They're going to want to have some sort of face-to-face, not anonymous sort of contact, they're actually going to desire that more because it seems to be more rare. And, and that might be what that phone call is, you know, text exchanges, a uh, little less personal maybe than a phone call, but email just completely impersonal. It just ends up being spam now where it used to be convenient. Now it's just sort of gets, it, it gets buried. It's interesting, but it doesn't surprise me. You know, I, I also wanted to build on what Josh said real quick. He's a thousand percent right. If you are educating and empowering consumers online, by the time they contact you, they've already made the decision to work with you. That's why they reached out. They didn't reach out to say, hey, what are your rates? You know, what are your fees or, or what is this? They reached out to say, hey, Josh, I just watched 18 hours of your videos. And <laughs> How could you would you would you bless me with I mean it's not that but it absolutely we we you know with find my way home to listen we're in a business that we need we grow our business by having conversations about what we what we're experts in. So we make money by having conversations about mortgages and real estate all day long. The more people you have conversations with about mortgage and real estate, the more people that you're putting in your pipeline, you're starting to earn that trust. This is the opportunity for you to have those conversations once and have it live forever, working for you, sending you referrals today on find my way home. Just people that find us on Google, just typing in search results, over 20,000 people a month we're having conversations with that we're not actually having conversations with. So those people are hearing. But it took two years before I got my first deal on a Find My Way Home, and that was doing writing three to five articles a week for two years. There's an aspect of this where... You have to shift your mindset to do short-term activities like creating video that's going to build your long game and create long-term gains because you're doing it once and it's lasting forever. You can go in there and update it, but what lasts forever is the history of your expertise. Right? It's been yeah. documented. It's online. It's easily accessible. And, and it, those are your trust assets.
2: Scott, some, something that you said that is important to remember. So I said it, you doubled down on it. You have to be willing to do a bunch of work with no payoff because eventually you're going to get exponential results. But the other piece is a lot of realtors, a lot of mortgage people feel like what I do is boring and mundane. No one wants to know about it, they're not going to watch. You joked someone saying, hey, I just watched 18 hours of video of you and then giving you a call. Jeb and I are working with a buyer up in in LA that sent a video saying, hey, I just finished binging all of your videos on YouTube. And it's you like think I that's that's insanity. You think that's insanity. But if you are a buyer who doesn't know anything, she just graduated from college, fiance just graduated from college, they're getting married next year. All of the things that this report is saying, life stages that say you're ready to buy a home, they are right there and no one's taught them. They didn't learn in school. They went and educated themselves online and they're like this person knows what they're talking about. They're honest. They're real. They binged all of that. They called and they're not going to do business with anyone else. They're going to get a loan from me. They're going to buy a home through him. Or if it's too far up into LA County, he'll refer it to someone local to them. But it's a different conversation. But again, he had four five, six months of posting videos three to five times a week with crickets in terms of business. And now the business is coming rather rapidly.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And that's about, that makes sense, right? Because it takes you a little while to build a relationship where someone's going to trust you with something that big. And if, you know, you think about the average consumer journey, you know, someone starts thinking about buying a home. YouTube is a great place to go to do that kind of lightweight research and then maybe even go to sort of a next level, right? Because buying a home isn't like, Getting in the car and going to Taco Bell and getting a burrito at the drive-through, right? Like,
0: not an impulse buy. It's
1: not an impulse buy. It's a multi-phase yeah. experience, you know. And so, you know, that initial phase can begin with a lightweight work on YouTube, and it can get you to that next phase and maybe two phases up, depending on how deep into YouTube you go. By the point you are talking to somebody like you guys, Josh and, and Scott, I mean, yeah, you, you you've you've already invested a lot, you've already learned a lot, and that time has passed. That six months of you know going through those initial phases.
2: And even, you know, we're, we're talking about the broadcast media in terms of using YouTube and those types of tools where you put it on Instagram or you put it on on LinkedIn. One of the things that we did, Scott and I sat in here on a weekend and we went through the 20 points of conversation through a transaction that we need to have with a borrower that generally requires me picking up the phone and going, hey, we just got your appraisal, the value came in, this is what it means. And that's a 5-10 minute conversation. A lot of people don't have the time or we just end up leaving a message, leave the same message over and over. We sat here, took about 3 hours, recorded out all those videos and our CRM at the appropriate point, once my processor checks the appraisals in, that video goes out. It's a three-minute video of me explaining what that means that the appraisal's in and what comes next. And it's just one-timing it. So there's the piece of going out and getting business, but it's also important during the process because so much of what people are talking about in this study is they're they're not confident. They don't know what comes next. It can be nerve-wracking, stressful, You know, we always talk about why does the loan come first? It's not because the realtor is my buddy and wants to make sure I get business. It's because they don't want you stressed all the way through the process. They don't want last minute problems. So when we start here and get you on solid footing with the loan, that eliminates that amount of stress. Now imagine if we and the realtor at every important milestone in the process is giving you a two minute video explaining what goes on. It's going to be a third of the amount of stress that they're going to. You never. It's it's the biggest purchase anyone's going to make and the largest debt they're ever going to take on. We cannot eliminate all of the stress from it, but you can do go a long ways towards ratcheting it way down and keeping people in the loop. And without you having to make fifty phone calls a day, having your clients feeling like hey, they understand where we're at and what we're
0: thinking and what we want to know. And I just can't stress enough that your competition isn't doing this. <laughs> yeah, they, they just aren't. They just aren't. The likelihood of you having a power player in your local area that's doing all of this stuff is almost not. The, the opportunities here are just wide, wide open.
2: This stuff is not expensive. It's not cheap. It's not expensive. It's, if you are a professional selling real estate or doing mortgages, you can get people to do it. Scott found a video person. Like we've, we've built a little studio here at not a tremendous cost. Probably, Scott, would you say we're less than $1,500 into the studio here in the office?
0: Oh, definitely. And, and that's just because we didn't know what we were doing.
2: Yeah, so yeah. for
0: fifteen hundred bucks, <laughs> you
2: can have a sweet setup. But also, we have a girl that has a filmmaking degree. She knows cameras and video and lighting and story a thousand times better than I do, better than Scott does. And when we go, hey, we need to record twenty videos, say. She says, cool, when do I show up? And she sits there and says, "We'll move here. We'll turn that light. Well, don't say it that way. Or you said this, I've never bought a house, but that didn't make any sense to me. Is that the best way to say it? So if you're not yeah. good on video or talking into the void, get someone like that. Again, she's not cheap, but she's not expensive. Not at all.
0: She's definitely not expensive. And and I hope she's not listening because I think she's, <laughs> she doesn't charge enough for what she does but but i mean she was a, but she was a student you know she's in her 20s she got out of film school and the first job she could get is filming depositions for an insurance company super, super exciting stuff.
2: (laughs) Scott and I actually look interesting in comparison to that.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And that was exactly my point. Like this stuff is interesting to her. Like she wants to buy a home someday. She wants to have a family. So now think of your your professional, you're a realtor out there. You find a kid like this that has this skill set that you don't have. It might be a future employee. You don't know, but she's just as engaged in this content as we are. And then we don't have to know. All we have to do is we have to bring our 25. between the two of us, almost 50 years of experience in the mortgage industry, and we just have to tell stories.
2: And you know, Scott, the important, the important piece about that, what I would tell anyone, look, I, I can't go back in time. I can't become 25 or 30 years old and relate on that level with those people. But what I can do is surround myself with employees, contractors, team members that are of that generation and trust and value their feedback. So that we're going, hey, here's what, 45-year-old guy thinks, what do you think? How does this feel? And they go, well, you kind of got it, but maybe try this angle. You you have to surround yourself. You have to be with the people that you're going to be serving. Otherwise, you're just going to go right over their heads, under their heads, around them. You have to speak their language. You have to be where they are.
1: Well, along the lines of speaking the language and being where they are, this next slide about the gender gap was really interesting because what it gives us is an insight into what things different people care about and think about. So for example, women approach the home buying process more carefully and cautiously with a cost-saving mindset. So if you're creating content and you want to talk to women, then you want to speak to that. And they're looking primarily for a trusted advisor. Women are. Versus men, tend, according to this study, have more of an investment mindset. Men are three times more likely to utilize a home as an income property, for example. So if you want to talk to men, you got to talk in the language of uh, investing. One thing I wanted to jump on and get your guys' take on percent contributing above $500 a month to savings. So there's a point in your life where putting a bunch of money into savings makes sense, right? And that we discussed it earlier. It could be when you're saving up, for example, for a home. But I did the math on this, okay? People putting money into retirement investing, of course, that's smart. People putting money into non-retirement investing, that might be smart, but $500 a month, Personally, in my situation, if I put $500 more a month to the principal of my mortgage, I would save about $80,000 on interest and I would pay my mortgage off nine years earlier. And I did the math on that. And that $500 basically saves me $360 a month on interest payments because I pay off the loan sooner and so, and, and I, you know, in all the, in all the ways that interest works uh, on a loan, right? So that's like a sixty five percent return on investment. I mean, you are not going to get that in non retirement.
0: Yeah. No, it's, yeah, non non retirement investing and and that that aspect of home ownership is something that we, is a whole another episode because you are you are a thousand percent right that there is there is an argument out there that housing is volatile. But as Josh always says, when you look at the leveraged return on on home ownership, on, on your investment, it's not even close. It's just okay. not even close. No,
2: no, not, not close whatsoever. So any of these, it's always engineer types. They're usually in Reddit. We didn't talk about Reddit because it's only male engineers <laughs> hiding over with their spreadsheets. But... They, they can give you a spreadsheet that tells you why it's better to rent and invest the difference. I can show you real world results that that's not true, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. It means for the engineer type who can live an austere life and, and has the discipline to save could come out ahead. So I think you were dead right, Dustin. Buy a home, start building up your equity, fix your housing cost, max your retirement account, especially if you're getting an employer match and you have tax deferred Growth. Then, when we get down to the non-retirement investing, now we can we can have a debate whether whether you're better off paying it down or investing in other places. But that's your hierarchy. Get a house because there's a chunk of that that is fixed. It's a fixed savings account, and it grows every month. We looked at at the numbers on an example here this week. You buy a five hundred thousand dollar house with five percent down. A little over five hundred dollars a month goes into your home equity. That's your principal portion of your payment every month. By year five, you're at like six hundred and forty dollars a month. By year ten, you're eight hundred dollars a month. So, like you, you, you can save at such a level that a renter never can, especially with their rent going up while your thirty year fixed payment is staying level.
1: And here, and here's a thought too. So, I just closed a refinance with you guys. That saved me about three hundred dollars a month in payment. Thank you for your help on that. By the way, <laughs> it was a very good experience. Highly recommend. But we did, did, we did we didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> Scott gave me his maxed out Forever 21 card it doesn't help me at all. But <laughs> what I did is I took that $300 and I immediately set up my my account through the loan servicer, and you know, I think Servicelink in my case. And I just said, "All right, well, I'm going to keep making the same payment I've always been making, but I'm going to take that $300 and I'm putting it right to principal." So now my monthly, you know, my monthly spend didn't change at all, but I'm saving uh, a lot more money in the long run because I'm putting $300 a month Toward the principal on my mortgage, you know, a lot of people are in a position to do that. I can't remember, Scott, if you and I talked about this or who was I was talking with that said that only about a third of people who potentially could refinance have refinanced. It's like some statistic like that josh probably knows it right off the top of his head perfect
2: yeah Yeah, no no it's less than 40 percent of people who should have refinanced by now have and that blows my mind and this week every day we've opened three or four new refinances and that boggles my mind i would have thought everyone who needed to has a while ago so don't don't ever underestimate the the ability of the consumer to delay the decisions that seem obvious especially when they're not easy like a refinance
1: Yeah, so that's I mean, right there is a great opportunity. If you're you know, if you're trying to figure out a way to, you know, market to this generation, one of the things you can talk about is, hey, here's a good way for you to build some wealth once you have a home. All of that. I mean, that would be a great series of videos. And by the way, if you're a real estate agent and you don't know how to talk about that, like I wouldn't know how to talk about that nearly as well as Scott or Josh. Great, just call Scott or Josh or your (laughs) lender. And do some videos with them. I'll bet they would be over the moon happy. but you know, especially if it's a lender that isn't involved in this at all yet, isn't in the game, and you know maybe there's somebody who's out of this area because otherwise you should just call Scott or Josh. They would love to do videos with you.
2: Um, every every minute I spend doing videos is one less minute that I'm actually crunching numbers. So you ask, and I will I will talk to the camera as much as you want. <laughs>
1: All right, well, we're coming up on an hour. There's one other thing I wanted to highlight, and that is the single woman buyer. Single women make up the second largest segment of home buyers, outnumbering single men two to one. I don't know about you guys, but I can't think of a single marketing campaign that I have ever come across in any of the seminars I've gone to, any of the coaching I see, the real estate agent, anything that says, you know who you should be marketing to are single women.
2: No, a, a thousand percent. And what I will say is Scott and I noticed this maybe two, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Started looking and going, there's two pieces to it. Not just the single women, but the thing that's interesting to me is the the amount of households. You go back 25 years, if you were the man, you were not allowed to not be the financial manager of the house. And I would say that it is two to one the woman that runs the finances in the house, that knows how much they have, how much they make, what their credit looks like. So as a real estate or a mortgage professional, if you think you have better rapport with men or communicate more with men and know that's your focus, what I will say for us at BuyWise, we skew more towards the entry-level buyer. And I think it's more common. Younger. If you go generationally, if you're selling two million dollar homes to 55, 60 year olds, there's probably a lot less of that. But this next gen home buyer that we are talking about, I don't, I don't know exactly the reasons. And I mean, a household where they both make equivalent amounts of money, but the the woman has controls the purse strings. And this isn't a rule, but I will say. Two to one, 60, 40, the the women generally, whether they're single and running their own household or they're married and running that household, it's, it's more common. So if you're not talking to them and understanding them and their needs and going through this next gen home buyer survey, you pointed out three or four different things that are very different about women and men and the way they look and approach things. And if you're a man and you're trying to mansplain your way through the way you see and think things, it's not they're not going to like it. They're not going to they're not going to react well to it. So it's important to understand that they are making as much or more of the financial decisions as men, and they look at it differently. And you need to understand and respect and appreciate that.
1: Yeah, that's a really great insight. Do you guys? I'm I'm running up on time, so I I, I need to wrap this up. But is there two? Well, two things. One, I'm inclined to say we're going to leave a bit of a cliffhanger here. This report dives into how COVID nineteen has changed the game for the for the home buyers, and this is one of the areas where I was surprised. It hasn't a whole lot in a lot of ways, but you should check it out. They break that down. Do you guys want to
2: add anything else before we uh, wrap it up? We, we we covered a lot of ground. I don't I don't necessarily just we covered so much, and really. Just know who you're selling to. Again, if you're selling million dollar, multi million dollar homes to 55, 60 year olds, this doesn't, not relevant to you. For most of us, we have to understand this and understand where these folks are coming from. It's not like they're aliens, they're not different than <laughs> older generations, but they're slightly different. And you have to understand and respect that or you're going to turn them off.
0: Yeah. The only thing I would add is there's so many valuable insights here. And as professionals, we literally have these conversations every single day. Do not be afraid to get that content online. You've got to learn to publish. You just have to learn to publish because if you're having these conversations one-to-one and nobody else is hearing it, like Josh said, being, being a publisher is not really even an option in our in our business anymore, especially not this last year.
1: Ricardo, anything you'd like to add? No.
0: I I feel great to have contributed so much. (laughs)
1: Awesome. Your your contributions
2: were invaluable, Ricardo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's It's a pleasure and an honor. This is available online, this report. I'm going to post a link to it in the Marketing Trench Facebook group where uh, we have the video recorded. Of course, you guys might be watching these videos on our personal pages as well. So if you want to read the report for yourself, go to the Marketing Trench Facebook group you should also join it while you're there so that you can get this report and other reports that we have gone over in the in the last few weeks. But I'm going to post it in the comments so you can go access it for yourself. Read the cliffhanger section about COVID-19. Really interesting stuff in there. And then of course, if you want to check out more podcasts like this, we encourage you to check out realdisrupt.com. We're part of the Real Disrupt Podcast Collaborative. And there are some really great shows over there that specialize uh, in the lending side of things. It specialize in the real estate side of things. Nothing that specializes in title and escrow. Womp, womp, but that's okay. We'll get there eventually. Uh, you can also check us out on your favorite favorite podcast apps. Uh, we are on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. We appreciate it. And uh, tell your friends. Until next time, this has been The Marketing Trench. Yeah.